Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us, Episode 21, Project Gemini Flight 9, Gemini 11. See you, Space Cowboy. Last time, we covered the flight of John Young and Mike Collins on Gemini 10. The flight successfully performed a remarkable double rendezvous with both Agena 10 and the leftover Agena 8, which had been on orbit since Gemini 8. However, the mission continued to demonstrate the somewhat confounding difficulty of extravehicular activity. EVA was a critical part of the rapidly approaching Apollo program, and still, fundamental questions about how to perform it effectively were left unanswered. With only two flights to go in Project Gemini, and a hard deadline for all spaceflight operations of January 31, 1967, time was quickly running out. And with the end of Gemini in sight, the project started to have other issues. Nobody wanted to be left out of the upcoming missions, or even without a job. So, when the managers for the Apollo program came knocking, it was sometimes too much to resist. In addition to losing personnel, the Gemini management found themselves competing for resources and even having to scrounge around for spare parts. Common opinion was that NASA would scrap the final few flights, similar to the tentatively planned 7th Mercury flight, giving even more incentive to move on quickly. But two people who had their sights firmly fixed on the mission at hand were the crew of Gemini 11. As mentioned previously, Gemini 11 was commanded by Pete Conrad. We first met Conrad during the lengthy journey of Gemini 5, so if you're interested in learning more about his background, listen to episode 15, which covers that mission. This was his second of four spaceflights. Flying alongside him as pilot would be Richard Dick Gordon. Dick Gordon was born on October 5, 1929, in Seattle, Washington. He graduated from the University of Washington in 1951 with a degree in chemistry. He became a naval aviator in 1953, attended all-weather flying school, and then joined an all-weather squadron in Florida. Makes sense. In 1957, he attended the Navy's Test Pilot School in Maryland. He served as a test pilot until 1960, flying five different types of jet aircraft. In May of 1961, the same month that Alan Shepard flew aboard Freedom 7, Gordon set a continental speed record of 2 hours and 47 minutes. He was selected by NASA in 1963 as part of the third astronaut group. This is his first of two flights in space, and fun fact, both of them were with Pete Conrad. Gemini 11 had four main objectives. A single revolution rendezvous, an ambitious EVA, evaluation of a tether for its use in station keeping, and high-altitude flight. Let's go through these one at a time. In order to help out the Apollo guys with planning ascent from the lunar surface or from an aborted landing, Gemini 11 was going to attempt a single revolution rendezvous. That is, they would rendezvous with their target Agena before the end of their first orbit. Pulling it off is going to require incredible precision with the launch, as well as a smooth and error-free approach. It was also going to require a lot more fuel than a four-orbit rendezvous, which was one of the main reasons for not doing this by default. Following a hopefully expedited rendezvous and docking would be an EVA. One thing that strikes me when reading about Project Gemini is they really just didn't seem to learn any lessons from EVA. This is just me speculating, but I have to imagine that this was a combination of Earthbound engineers failing to think in zero gravity 
as well as the ease of Ed White's spacewalk. I've mentioned this before, but I think it bears repeating. Ed White's job on the first American spacewalk was essentially to do nothing more than go outside and then make sure he came back inside. He took some photos, putted around a bit with his zip gun, and enjoyed the view. This was not at all like the strenuous tasks assigned to Gene Cernan and Mike Collins in the flights that followed. Cernan had failed on his EVA and warned Collins and the engineers that it was quite a bit more difficult than they thought. Collins didn't quite fail in his EVA, but had far more difficulty than anticipated, even with Cernan's warning. The ominous reports from Cernan and Collins were duly noted, but time in Project Gemini was short, and who knows, maybe the problem was with the astronauts. With this in mind, yet another complex EVA was planned for Gemini 11. How complex? Here's the rundown of planned activities as listed in the Gemini 11 press kit. The pilot will... Open the hatch, install a handrail, and set up a 16mm video camera. Leave the spacecraft and travel to the Agena target docking adapter. Retrieve a 100-foot tether stored in a bag behind the adapter. Attach the tether to both the Agena and the Gemini, looping it around the docking index bar. Install a mirror near the docking bar. I think this is so Conrad could see what was happening. And then return to the area near the hatch. Swap out the film canister on the video camera and remount it so it's pointed the other way. Then move to the rear of the Gemini. Attach a knee tether to a handrail, open a toolbox, and pull out an experimental power tool. Use the power tool to tighten four bolts and then unscrew four bolts. If this sounds familiar, that's because David Scott was going to do it on Gemini 8 before the mission was cut short. Do a bunch more bolt-related activities with the power tool. The press kit really goes into detail here that I'll spare you. Go back to the hatch and swap out the film canister in the video camera again, and then go back to the rear of the Gemini. Open a door in the side of the spacecraft, reach inside to attach the zip gun to a fitting in there, and retrieve some cameras. Go back to the hatch and hand the cameras to Conrad. Go back to the front of the spacecraft to retrieve the docking bar mirror he had set up earlier, and finally get back inside. That is a lot of stuff to do. To be fair, they planned on it taking around two hours, but given the experience on the previous EVAs, I find it a little baffling that so much stuff was planned. Now, spacewalker complaints hadn't fallen on entirely deaf ears. There were additional handrails and a new foot restraint, so it shouldn't be quite as bad, but still... We'll get to the EVA later, but let's just say things may not go quite as planned. The next objective was evaluating the tether. The tether was pretty interesting. The idea here was to connect the Gemini and Agena with what was essentially just a 100-foot rope. If they did this while the Agena was lower than the Gemini, and while they were lined up with the center of the Earth, the small difference in their orbits should stabilize them in that position. This would be great, since it'd be like free station-keeping. Normally, station-keeping takes a fair amount of attention from the astronauts, as well as fuel. If the tether worked as hoped, then future missions could attach themselves, get in position, and then sleep, attend to other activities, or whatever. While they were attached, they were also going to try an experiment to create some fake gravity by spinning the entire structure. When you watch sci-fi movies that take place in the far-flung future or 16 years ago, 
you often see large rotating structures that allow the occupants to walk around on the inside walls as if they were on the Earth. This wasn't going to be quite that ambitious. If it seemed to be working alright, they were going to spin up to one degree per second, which would result in an effect similar to the one seen in the movies, but far, far less powerful. Lastly, Gemini 11 was going to use the Primary Propulsion System, or PPS, of the Agena to raise their orbit to record-breaking heights. Sharp-eared listeners may recall that last time I mentioned something about a trip around the moon? It's true. For a while now, an idea had been kicking around called the Large Elliptical Orbit. Somewhat infuriatingly, this is referred to as the LEO, which these days is used for Low Earth Orbit basically the exact opposite of the large elliptical orbit. The Gemini-Agena combination was obviously not capable of landing on the surface of the moon, but there didn't seem to be anything to stop them from flying out there and getting a closer look on a free return trajectory. If you're thinking, wow, I didn't know Gemini flew to the moon, it's because it didn't. There were some technical issues here, as well as political concerns including the usual interdepartmental turf battles and concern that maybe Congress would fund Apollo less if Gemini suddenly proved itself capable of lunar operations. The spacecraft should have been able to handle it, but it was just too big of a jump too soon. Pete Conrad still wanted to see how high Gemini could fly, though, and successfully campaigned to raise their apogee to 850 miles, nearly twice as high as Gemini 10. At that altitude, the spacecraft would be scraping the inside of the Van Allen belts. Researchers would be able to learn even more about the effects of radiation on manned spacecraft and the men inside. To keep the radiation to reasonable levels, they would stay in that high orbit for only two revolutions and would place their apogee over Australia, where the belts are higher. But the Van Allen belts were still quite a ways away when Conrad and Gordon woke up in Florida on September 12, 1966. They did the usual astronaut ritual of breakfast, suit, and van, and arrived at their spacecraft with the timeline proceeding smoothly. At 8.05 a.m., their target rose from the launch pad just a few miles away. Previous rendezvous launches had been pretty tight on launch windows, but Gemini 11 really put the timeline to the test. In order to have any hope of catching their prey on the first orbit, they would need to lift off the pad inside of a window of only two seconds. That's one, two, you missed it. But Gemini 11 didn't miss it, and precisely at 9.42 a.m. and 26 and a half seconds, they were on their way. First stage and second stage performed admirably, and before long they were on orbit, performing the insertion velocity adjust routine to take care of any slight errors in their orbital insertion. At this point, the Agena was 270 miles away. It wouldn't stay that far away for long, though. The crew executed a series of maneuvers over the next hour and a half that ensured that by the time they arrived over their launch site, the target was drifting serenely nearby. Direct ascent rendezvous had been achieved. Docking soon followed, only 94 minutes after liftoff. It's worth noting that this is the first and only direct ascent of a manned spacecraft at the time of this writing. I didn't run this one down, so take it with a grain of salt, but I'm pretty sure it's the only direct ascent at all, if you don't count stuff like anti-satellite missiles. Sure, it's a gas guzzler, but it's also pretty cool. 
The crew spent the next few hours practicing undocking and redocking. Even Dick Gordon got a shot at this, as well as completing a number of experiments. They wrapped up their first day in space with the prelude of the long Agena PPS burn to come. They turned perpendicular to their direction of travel and performed a brief burn with the PPS in order to adjust the inclination of their orbit. Much like Young and Collins, Conrad and Gordon were duly impressed by the powerful rocket firing just a few feet away from them. Gordon called it the biggest thrill we've had all day. The next day's big task was the complex EVA, which was getting more complex by the minute. One more task was added when Conrad requested that Gordon be allowed to clean off his window while outside. The Gemini windows kept getting covered in mysterious cruft during launch, despite the addition of window covers. So Mission Control asked Gordon to wipe down half of Conrad's window and bring the cloth back with him for analysis. In a somewhat ironic twist, their training worked against them. The crew had practiced the cumbersome task of preparing their suits for cabin depressurization so much that they were ready to go less than an hour into the four hours allotted. This may not seem like a problem, but keep in mind that everything on a spacecraft is designed with a very specific environment in mind. Dick Gordon's cooling system was designed to work in a vacuum, not in a pressurized spaceship. Both men quickly became uncomfortable and regretted getting ready so early. They considered requesting an early start to the EVA, but seemingly benign timeline changes can lead to other unexpected problems, so they just toughed it out. They eventually tried activating Gordon's EVA cooling system, but this had the effect of dumping extra oxygen into the pressurized cabin, requiring the spacecraft to vent the excess into space to maintain a specific pressure. Dumping oxygen into space is never a great idea, so that didn't last long before they turned it off. Another seemingly trivial task that threw an unexpected wrench in the works was attaching the sun-blocking visor, basically giant sunglasses, to Gordon's helmet. This should have been done before they had gotten all their gear on, but was forgotten. The task proved so difficult that Gordon was already slightly overworked before the EVA even began. Despite all of this, the door was opened and the EVA began precisely on time. I haven't seen this mentioned for the previous spacewalks, but apparently an expected part of opening the hatch is that the trace amounts of remaining gas in the cabin, including outgassing from the cabin materials, suddenly rush out into space. And they carry any floating items, garbage bags, or Dick Gordon's out with them. Conrad lent Gordon a hand and grabbed a leg tether to keep him from drifting too far away right off the bat. Remember our EVA checklist from earlier? Me neither! But Dick Gordon started checking boxes pretty quickly. Handrail? Check. Retrieval of nuclear emulsion experiment? Check. Camera mount? A little difficult, but nothing a little percussive maintenance, aka punching, couldn't fix. But this was all essentially a stand-up EVA at this point. Next up was to traverse over to the Agena. As Gordon tried to reach the target docking adapter, he missed, hit the end of his tether, and swung all the way around to the back of the Gemini. Conrad helpfully grabbed the tether to reel him back in for another try. When he returned to the area of interest, he opted to straddle the front of the Gemini nose like some kind of crazy space cowboy. In fact, Conrad called out, Ride him, cowboy! 
The space cowboy technique worked well enough that after a few minutes of struggling, he was able to connect the tether to the docking bar. Though only a few basic tasks had been completed, Dick Gordon was already exhausted at this point. He was breathing hard, sweat was getting into his eyes, blurring his vision, and his suit's environmental control system was struggling to keep up. Pete Conrad decided to make the call that Gordon didn't want to, and ended the EVA early. Gordon made his way back to the cockpit and closed the hatch only a half hour after starting. Yet another failed EVA. Folks on the ground clearly had a problem on their hands when it came to EVA, but the next part of the flight went quite a bit better. 40 hours into the flight, the Agena engine roared to life, and for 26 seconds, the Gemini 11 crew had the ride of their life. Reading Pete Conrad quotes in dry text always makes me laugh, because at this point he is quoted as saying, Whoop-dee-doo! Whoop-dee-doo indeed. The spacecraft pair was on its way to unexplored heights. Over the next two orbits, the crew took hundreds of photos from their lofty new vantage point. Upon returning from their high apogee the second time, they fired the engine again, this time in the other direction, and returned to their low circular orbit. While up there, they estimated their radiation exposure to be about 0.2 rad per hour. For reference, a chest x-ray will ring in at about 0.7 rads, so that's not so bad. Okay, that went a lot better than the EVA. So what's next? EVA's far more relaxed cousin, the stand-up EVA. This again is where the pilot opens the hatch and stands on his seat, exposing his head and shoulders to the void, but mostly remaining inside the spacecraft. Since there's not a lot of crawling around involved, it's quite a bit easier. Dick Gordon's task for the stand-up EVA was to photograph some dim astronomical phenomena, so it took place during orbital night. The task went easily enough, and before long, the sun rose again. Gordon was to take photos on two orbital nights, but no activities had been planned during the orbital day in between. This means that Pete Conrad, and especially Dick Gordon, had one of the ultimate luxuries in spaceflight. Free time. Gordon had nothing to do but relax and watch the world go by for more than 45 minutes. With the lack of activity, quiet calm links, and slight movements of the spacecraft gently swaying them from side to side, both men soon fell asleep. Man, that sounds great. They both woke up for the second night pass, and after completing his experiments, Gordon returned to the confines of the cabin once more. Next was the gravity gradient exercise. This was the maneuver where they would separate from the Agena, still on its tether, and attempt to let their slightly different orbits maintain a stable configuration. Basically, if it worked as expected, the Agena would stay between the Gemini and the Earth, even as they orbited around. The Agena would stay down. Things didn't quite work out that way, however. For reasons the astronauts couldn't really explain, the tether never really seemed to get quite taut. In addition, both vehicles kept getting yanked and torqued around by the dynamics of the system. It was difficult to keep both stable, and with such a relatively short tether, these minor motions seemed to be pretty disruptive to the gravity gradient setup. So instead they moved on to the induced gravity experiment. 
By using their thrusters, they imparted a slight spin to the whole system, such that both vehicles were slowly revolving around their common center of mass. They started off really slow, completing a full revolution only after more than 10 minutes, but they eventually ramped it up to about 1 degree a second, or 6 minutes for a full revolution. The crew were unable to feel any of the slight centrifugal force, but when they dropped items in the cabin, they fell as expected. Neat. For their last trick, the crew first disconnected the tether. They performed a small burn before a sleep period so that they would drift away from the Agena. When they woke up, they practiced yet another method of rendezvous, this time with a target in the same orbit, but ahead in that orbit. When they finally drifted away for the last time, Conrad called the Agena the best friend we ever had. All that was left for Gemini 11 was the re-entry. This was to be the program's first fully automatic landing, with the onboard computer calling the shots. But it wouldn't be an entirely hands-off landing. Conrad wanted to be sure that if the computer failed, he would be able to quickly take over, so he deactivated the hand controller and then mimicked the proper motions as the computer commanded them. Apparently, the computer knew what it was doing, since it guided the spacecraft down for a landing only two and a half miles from the target point, just shy of three days after lifting off. So this was quite a busy little mission. Direct ascent rendezvous, multiple dockings, two EVAs, tether exercises, and the usual boatload of science experiments. Overall, the mission was a success, but those EVA problems just weren't going away. Gemini 11, I think, put a nail in the coffin for the current methods of EVA training. Three times was not a fluke. Clearly something was wrong with the way NASA was preparing these astronauts for their time outside the spacecraft. There was only one mission left in Project Gemini to figure this out. So why is Buzz Aldrin spending so much time in the pool? You'll just have to find out next time. One quick note, I see that there have been a few more iTunes ratings and reviews. I just wanted to say, truly, thank you so much. It means a ton to know you people are out there and enjoying the show. And the reviews help a lot in reaching new people. As usual, feel free to contact me with feedback, gripes, or just to say hi via email at jp at thespaceabove.us, via Twitter at spaceaboveus, or on the show's Facebook page, facebook.com slash thespaceaboveus. See you in two weeks as we bring our journey through Project Gemini to a close with the flight of Gemini 12. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.